0: as we get to the point, right? Have you found your place? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16-21. to 21. I hope you'll keep your Bible open. I've entitled my message today, Make the Appeal. Will you say that with me? Make, say it with some conviction, make, make the appeal. That's what we find from the writing of the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth. Meriwether Lewis and William Clark were commissioned by Thomas Jefferson to explore and hopefully discover a Northwest Passage. You know them probably from history as Lewis and Clark, uh, the tag team that found themselves on this journey at the furthest west point in the Louisiana Territory at what we know as the Continental Divide at the spine of the Rocky Mountains. Dayton, Duncan, and Ken Burns in their book, The Illustrated History of Lewis and Clark, they noted that no American had ever made it this far to the west. You see, for over three centuries, explorers had only dreamed. They had written and they had speculated about the land west of the continental divide. There were many who said there has to be a waterway some type of passage that goes through the northwest of our great land and that that waterway potentially could control any trade that might in the future go to the west. There were some who had actually drawn maps and there were guides that some had in their mind only imagined and speculated about. So Lewis and Clark set on this journey, commissioned by Jefferson, and they thought there was going to be a moment where they would reach the pinnacle of their dreams. But as they got closer, they encountered some some different Indian tribes that gave them some different pieces of information. And then one day as they were traveling, they they got to a spot where there was a kind of a hole out on the horizon about three months ahead of time, and they saw the snow-covered peak of a mountain. It made them have some questions in their mind. And then they met the Mandans Indians who gave them some info that made them think that a waterway was actually less likely. They had prepared for this moment by building canoes. They thought when we get to what they thought would be the Columbia River, we'll need a canoe in this waterway leading out to the Northwest. Historical geographer John Logan Allen said that when they reached the spot, called Lemmy Pass, it was a moment where the geography of hope turned into the geography of reality. Because their plans and their preparations and their hopes turned into a disappointing reality. What they found is that there was no waterway. But what was in front of them was a much more difficult much more treacherous piece of land called the Colorado Rockies. There they stood at Lemmy Pass with their canoes when they actually had mountains in front of them. So they had to scrap their plans, abandon all the maps that uh, some had guessed and speculated about. They laid down their canoes and realized they needed some horses for the journey that was ahead. I just finished a book entitled Canoeing the Mountains. You understand why the the author gave it that title now, as he is trying to say we find ourselves in some uncharted territories of leadership that many times we think that things are going to be a certain way, or maybe we even think that we know how to handle what's around us, but the truth is there are many leaders today that find themselves in uncharted waters in unfamiliar territory. The writer Todd Bolsinger said this. Look on the screen. He said, when a mental model dies, a painful paradigm shift takes place within us. It is disorienting and anxiety-making. Notice this last sentence. It's as if the world as we know it ceases to exist. Now, think about that for just a minute. You have a mental model in your mind. This is the way it should be. This is the way it's going to be, and then when you realize it's not really that way, when you're standing there with a canoe in your hand and there's no water, there's a mountain in front of you. What happens? That world you thought of that 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 was laid out on a map that was only imaginary. You realize that that world does not even exist. As I read this story, my mind began to think about the world that you and I live in today. Can we all agree that the world is rapidly changing? That we don't see things like we used to see it. That the path ahead, it seems somewhat treacherous, at least for us as Christians. We've been, of course, looking at that over the last several weeks and some of the things going on in the church and in Christianity and in religion. And I would say to you that when we look at the world today, there are only two groups of people, only two. One is the saved and one is the lost, and when we look at it that way, I need to remind you there's a whole lot more of them than there are of us, because the scripture says that the way to life everlasting, the way to the Father, the way to salvation is actually a narrow path. It's very narrow, but the path to destruction is very, very broad. Now, if I could be transparent for just a moment, I don't know about you, but I feel like when it comes to evangelism and the world that you and I find ourselves in today, I feel like I'm staring at the Colorado Rockies. I feel like that the world around us, that it's very difficult, it's very difficult to evangelize and to share our faith. I would go a step further and say that I believe that there are some churches today who are functioning with canoes in their hand and they're not prepared for the world that's all around them. What do you mean by that, Pastor? Well, Bolsinger goes on to say in that book that the church today faces a ever-changing topography of faith. We have a a paradigm in our mind. We have a model in our mind and and we think this is the way church should be done. Uh, This is the way evangelism should be done. Uh, This is the way youth ministry should be done. This is the way children's ministry should be done. And I can promise you that every pastor and every staff and every church is at least thinking about what's going on in our world today. How do we move forward? How do we evangelize? How do we disciple? Now, if I could illustrate it for just a minute, I grew up in churches. I believe that really emphasized evangelism. In my teenage years, there was hardly a week that went by that we didn't go out and and witness. I mean, we would go out. Uh, when I was in Birmingham as a teenager, I've actually went street preaching in Birmingham. I mean, down on the street, people at the bus stop and other places sharing the gospel. I've gone on door-to-door evangelism, you know, uh, just what we call cold call evangelism, knocking on somebody's door, inviting them to church, uh, sharing the gospel with them. And and uh, when we would go out, we would take with us primarily one piece of literature. It was called the Romans Road. How many of you've heard of the Romans Road before? All right. um. As I look back on that, if you'll allow me some grace here for just a minute, I don't want to criticize the Roman's road, but I want to make a point about the Roman's road. As I look back and think about that and even think about this moment, I think about a lost person who doesn't know anything about the church, nothing about the gospel, nothing about the word of God, receiving a piece of literature, and they look down at it, and it says the Roman's road and it has a helmet with a feather on top of it. Now, I don't know about you, but I kind of think of that now, and it kind of makes me chuckle a little bit, because to a lost person, you and I kind of get it, right? Come on, get with me here now. You and I kind of get it a little bit. Think about a lost person. I mean, a lost person is thinking, what are they trying to do? Uh, Convert me to the, the religion of Rome, all right? Maybe they view it a little different. Inside that track there's about six, eight, ten verses from the book of Romans, which is the word of God. Praise God for that. It is the gospel, it is laid out well. You flip it over on the back and there's a prayer on it and so forth. And so we would give all of those out. But when you open up that tract and you read the first two verses, Romans 3.10, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I point those two verses out to say that to a sinner who doesn't believe in God or believe the Bible or believe Jesus died on the cross, that is not the starting point of sharing the gospel. Now, the reason I'm sharing that with you is not to, again, criticize the Romans wrote or to say, oh, you're doing it wrong if you pass it out. I want you to hear me for just a minute. Maybe today we're approaching evangelism with a canoe instead of thinking about what we're facing out there. That's why we're doing evangelism training tonight. We're gonna go through a process of how to share your faith. Uh, We're gonna begin really with Genesis chapter one and try to help you lay it out to a world out there that is becoming more and more ignorant of the scriptures and further and further away from God. It's as simple as every person needs to be challenged with the thought, where did I come from and where am I going? And then we can fill in the gaps in between from the word of God. Now, what I want to give you this morning, just briefly, is a quick challenge. If you are in Christ, you have been called and commissioned to, say it with me, make the, come on, say it with me. You've been called and commissioned to make the appeal. The appeal is not optional, okay? Charles Haddon Spurgeon said there are two types of Christians, those that witness and those that are imposters. Straw Spurgeon. The appeal's not optional, it's something that every one of us are called to do. And I want you to look at me for just a minute. I have no desire at all today to scold you or to put you on a guilt trip. You know, I'm not here today to skin you alive, as my grandfather used to say, all right? My goal today is to encourage you, to say to you, Do you know Christ? do you know Christ? Does Christ live in you? Let me ask you another question. Do you want anybody, anybody to spend eternity separated from God? Would it be just like God that he would place you and I, where we live, with our neighbors, with our co-workers, with our classmates, with our family members, or whoever, that God would place us right where we're at as his representation to make the appeal. Paul's writing to the church at Corinth, and he says to them in verse number 16, I want you to see, first of all, that now, now that you are in Christ, you have a new perspective. Look at verse number 16, from now on. Do you notice there a change, right? From, things are different now. Two, two aspects to that. Number one is, from now on since the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, but also from now on since you have been born again by God's grace. How many of you remember that moment you had that fresh start in Christ? That fresh start. For me, it was when I was 13 years old, when I acknowledged I was a sinner, believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and confessed my sin. A fresh start, a new beginning in Christ. And, And Paul is saying here that when that happens, you have a new perspective. Last week, we got away for a few days and we went up to the Smoky Mountains. And man, it's beautiful. All those hills and hollers. We didn't see any sand. We didn't see any waves, which is beautiful, which is beautiful, But how many of you know just occasionally the freshness of some new scenery? Seeing something different. Man, when you look at those mountains and you look at those trees, how can you not be amazed and overwhelmed at the diversity and the power of our Creator, Almighty God? Who does all things well? You just get a fresh perspective on how awesome God is. It just gives you that that perspective that that you need that God is God and God is in control. And every now and then, we need to take a a step back and get a, a fresh perspective on things. That's what Paul's saying here in verse 16. From now on, get the right perspective. Things are going to be different moving forward. How many of you remember when you came home from the hospital the first time with your first child? How many of you look back now and you say, from now on? (laughs) Things will never be the same, right? From now on. I mean, I remember Misty and I, we brought Rebecca home from the hospital. Man, I drove 35 all the way home, had four seatbelts on her, you know, and we were so excited. Now she's 20, almost 27 years old. It's hard to believe. But I promise you, from that moment on, our life changed. Lexi is growing up, and I was joking with her last week. It seems like the last couple weeks, she's had four words on her mind that begin with the letter D. The first word was Dollywood. When we, some of you are laughing. We went to Pigeon Forge. She had to go to Dollywood. Didn't matter if it was rain and sleet or snow in Dollywood. The second word was donuts. Get, get, come on, get in my world now, 10-year-old. Donuts, Krispy Kreme, the red light's on the third word was Dave and Busters. That is an arcade where kids get to go in and spend all of their dad's money to get tickets, to get a plastic kazoo that is worthless, right? Haven <laughs> Busters, we went there. We got that scratched off the list. But there's one thing we haven't got scratched off the list yet. The fourth word is the word dog. She has, she has puppy on the brain. How many of you parents know it's hard to explain to a 10-year-old kid that if we get a dog from now on, <laughs> who's going to be out there in the cold at night walking the dog and feeding the dog and taking care of the dog? So I'm trying to help her. She wants the dog so bad, but I'm trying to help her get a different perspective on the matter. When you think about that, look at verse number 16. The perspective here is. Paul says, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. So what's the new perspective? We look at people differently. We look at the world differently. We no longer make our judgments based off of the world or off of the flesh. We make that through spiritual matters. Now, I've been asked this a few times in the last few weeks, and I just want to say a word here. You know, sometimes people say, you know, you Christians, you're so judgmental. Now, hear me for just a minute. I've, I've been around Christians who are, who are judgmental, who are critical, uh, who have a, a critical spirit, who nitpick and love to judge everybody and everything. But hear me for just a minute. That's one thing. It's a whole other thing to make a judgment, Okay, just because you make a judgment, it does not mean that you're judgmental. People like to run to judge not, that you be not judged. Time out. That verse is talking about being judgmental, not making a judgment. Paul is saying in verse number 16, the word regard is the word to understand or to make a judgment. He's saying that we no longer understand people through a, a lens of worldly things, but we look at people through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the new perspective that Christians have. So as Christians, we have a new perspective. Number two, we have a new purpose, okay? How many of you memorized 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17? maybe when you were growing up in Sunday school or in church. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. Can can I be honest with you for a minute? I've known that verse a long time, but I really feel like I'm just now really understanding the fullness of that verse. In this moment right now, my life is in Christ. I am a new creation. I'm in Jesus. Doesn't matter what the world says about me or how the world tries to affect the way I think about it. The reality of it is I have a new purpose in my life because I am in Christ. This past Wednesday was St. Patrick's Day, and I I wanted you to see a quote from St. Patrick where he said, Christ be with me. Christ within me, Christ behind me, Christ before me, Christ beside me, Christ to win me, Christ to comfort and restore me. What is he saying there? Everything is about Christ. Everything about Tim Coleman is supposed to be about Jesus. Now, I need to back up to verse 14. Look in your Bible back to verse 14. Paul impacts this, this purpose a little bit more. He said, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded that one has died for all. Notice the last phrase there, therefore all have died. Now notice two key phrases there. Number one, because Christ loved me and Christ saved me, now Christ controls me. He constrains me. How does that happen? Well, Jesus died on the cross, and when you become a Christian, Paul says, we all have died. That's why Paul said, I die daily. Hear me now. You're not a Christian if you've not died. That's what the Bible says. You die to self. You crucify the old man. Verse number 15. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Look at me, church. When Jesus went to the cross, did he go with a purpose? Was there a reason he died? He died with purpose. The redemption of mankind, that was the purpose. When you die, you die for a purpose you have purpose to your being. Years ago, I made Galatians chapter 2 verse number 20 my last verse. Here's what it says. I'm crucified with Christ. It is no longer I that lives, yet not Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in faith by the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What was Paul saying? I have been crucified When Jesus beckoned people to come and follow him, what did he tell them in Luke chapter nine, verse number 23? Let anyone who come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So when you come to Christ, you die to yourself and you have a purpose. Now hear me, I today am free in Christ. I'm free, Galatians chapter five. Stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free and do not become again entangled with the yoke of bondage. I am free in Christ, but that does not mean that I have no restraints because what restrains me is Christ. The book of Titus chapter two and verse number 14 says this, that Christ has set set aside for himself a peculiar people. Now that word, word peculiar there in the old King James Version in the old English, it doesn't mean weird. How many of you met some Christians that fit that billing, right? They're, they're Christians, but they're weirdos. No, that, that word there is not weird. Here's what that word means. It means to be set apart. In other words, there are some Christ boundaries for all of our lives that we are to live in once you have been reconciled to God, you've been born again, you have a purpose for living. Look at me, that purpose is not for you to live for yourself. Now, how many of you come with me now and we can come into agreement? That's something Tim Coleman struggles with. Because you know what, Tim likes to be comfortable. Tim likes things kind of to be his way, right? If we're not careful, we'll fall into this pattern of the flesh where we'll live for ourselves. That's not what Christians are called to. We're called to die to ourselves and live for Christ. So we have a new perspective. We have a new purpose. And let me finish by saying, now we have a new plea. Look at verse number 18. Verse number 18, the first phrase, I want you to say this out loud with me. All this is from God. Say it with me. who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Now, I wanna be very clear here. The work of salvation is a work of God. The work of salvation is a work of God. When you were made, a new creation in Christ had nothing to do with you turning over a new leaf. It had everything to do with Christ making you clean and new in him. Salvation is a work of God. It's not, hey, why don't you give Jesus a chance? Give him a try. You know, like you're trying a new flavor of ice cream. If you don't like it, you'll go to another bucket. That's not salvation. Salvation is a work of God where God saves you, and God changes you. So what I want you to see real quick, I need your best ears for a minute, in verses 18 down through the end of chapter, I want you to see this blending of the sovereign work of a holy God in your salvation and then his choice in placing us in the process. All this is from God, but yet he chooses us to help people understand what the gospel is all about. Uh, I finished a book this week entitled Kill the Spider, and all the ladies said amen. I know my wife would say amen to that. Kill the Spider by Carlos Whitaker, and in that book, he talks about a conversation he had with his dad um, about in life, you know, if we can make the analogy that we all have got cobwebs, right? And, And so we're all trying to get all the cobwebs out of our life, you know, deal with the cobwebs, and his dad said to him one day, he said, Carlos, here's your problem, you're getting rid of the cobwebs, but you're not killing the spider. You're not killing the spider that's making the cobwebs. And it's a really good analogy and a good book. And so he just begins to, in this book, unpack the spiders that he's had to kill in his own heart. And he begins by telling the story of when he was seven years old. He was in his Baptist church. He was sitting on the front row of the balcony on a Sunday night, and the church had brought in a gospel magician he said, I was so excited about seeing the gospel magician. And he said, I sat there on the front row and I was just mesmerizing all the things he did and the things he disappeared. And of course, I'm sure that the gospel magician mixed in some Bible verses and told about the cross and so forth in his presentation. And so he said, I sat there and I'm just like, wow, wow. And he said, he got got kind of the end of what he was doing. And he said, they invited people to come down to the front and he said, before my mom could stop me, he said, I jumped up. He said, in my mind, I was thinking, man, I want to get down there and get close to that magician. I want to meet that magician. He said, so I'm standing down the front, seven-year-old boy. And he said, the magician goes over. And he said, I noticed that he put his hand on the shoulder of a man that was crying. And he said, I thought that was weird. This is a pretty good show, you know? Um, why is this guy crying? And he says, I'm standing there. He said, all of a sudden, Miss Platt, the piano player, put her hand on my shoulder and I turned around and he said, she just reached down and hugged me and squeezed me real tight. And she says, oh, Carlos, I'm so proud of you for coming. Let's sit down here on the front row. And he sat down, he looked up at her and she said, Carlos, I want you to bow your head and I want you to repeat this prayer after me. And Carlos said, I remember as a seven-year-old boy thinking, what in the world is going on? I I just came down here to see the magician.'" Now, Ms. Platt has me sitting on the front row, and she's got me praying a prayer. He said, so I did what she told me to do, and she just hugged me, and she took me to my mom, and my mom hugged me, and, 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 and the next day, I went to the preacher's office, and, and he had a Bible for me that had my name engraved on it, and, and they were just so excited that, that Ms. Platt led me in this prayer, and he said, there was just one problem. As a seven-year-old kid, he said, I was thinking, what is going on? All I wanted to do was see the magician. And he said, but what my church did, now hear me just a minute. He said, what my church did is they started the first spider in my life. They taught me to live a lie, to live a lie. He said, I no more went forward that night to get saved than anything, but the church celebrated that I came, the church baptized me, and then I began a process of them reminded me of what happened in my life that night and he said, nothing happened in my life that night except I didn't get to meet the magician. So watch, watch this. I think this is important. He said, so for the next few years, I had to battle the spider of living a lie knowing I was living a lie. Now, time out for just a minute. I wanna say this is your pastor. I wanna see people saved. Oh, I'm burdened today to see people saved. But I'm gonna tell you something. I believe the church today is reaping the fruit of event evangelism where stuff like that has happened. We've got somebody to pray a prayer and raise a hand, and they're no more saved than a ball in the high weeds, but we tell them they're saved. May we never, hear me, may we never tell someone, a child, that they're saved just because we get them to follow our protocol. I'm gonna tell you what happened in Carlos's life. That's not my testimony, that's his testimony. I'm gonna tell you what happened. There were well-intended people that circumvented the true plan of God in salvation. That's what happened. So watch me. I remind myself often, even on Sundays, I can't save anybody. I don't, I don't save anybody. Don't you wish you could? How many know some people right now, if you could save them, you'd do it. You'd already done it. No, we don't save anyone. God, salvation is a work of God. But watch, I give you all of that to say, Paul still says here that God chooses to use us in the process. Look at verse number 18. All this is from God who through Christ reconciles us to himself. Now look at me, when you preach the gospel, it is a gospel of reconciliation, you don't have reconciliation until you first realize there's a problem. If you say, well, you know, I've been reconciled with a friend or reconciled with a family member, what you're saying is, is that we had a problem and that problem has been fixed. What is the problem between God and man? The problem is sin. Sin, right? And so if you're reconciled to God, it's because you realize you're a sinner and you're born again. No, no one is saved Without recognizing they're a sinner, I, I was listening to a, a church service online a few weeks ago, and and not being ugly, but the, you know the guy up there preaching, he preached a good message. I say a good message. He preached a message about you know having victory and so forth, and he got down to the end, and he didn't preach the cross, he didn't preach the shed blood of the Lord, he didn't preach repentance, but he got down to the end, and he just led. Let's just have everybody in the room pray this prayer. If you've had a bad day, pray this prayer. If you want God to fix your boo boos, pray this prayer. And he let everybody in the prayer, and I'm going, wait a minute, bud. you just. And then when the prayer ended, he told people in the room they just got saved, and I'm going, if I'm sitting in that audience, there's a good chance I might be as confused as a termite in a yo-yo. When you bring people to the cross, you've got to preach the gospel. Is there anybody tracking with me today? You've got to preach the gospel. You've got to preach reconciliation, that you're at enmity with God, And the only way it can be fixed is through Jesus. I told Ms. Jordan to put out here on this sign, this digital board by the the bridge. Jesus is not the best way. He's not a good way. He's the only way. That's the only way you're gonna make it to the Father. That's what reconciliation is. Now, real quick, last part of verse number 18. God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That word ministry there is service. Service. It's really the same word from which we get, Deacon. That is, verse 19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Here it is again. And entrusting to us the logos, the message of reconciliation. Now, how many of you believe today that God wants his children to give a clear message, to give a clear gospel. So I've circled in uh, my scripture here, in verse 18, I've circled the word ministry, and I've drawn a line down to the word entrusting, and I've connected those two together to say that God in my life, since, since I've been reconciled through his son to himself, now he has handed me the ministry of reconciliation now that I've been saved, I should have a burden in my heart to see other people saved. Now, hear me today, church. Again, I'm here to encourage you. I'm not here to scold you, but I'm going to tell you, too many people think that the ministry of reconciliation belongs to the pastor and the staff. And quite frankly, if we're not careful, we'll fall into the trap of not being engaged in evangelism like we should. It's a mission that's been given to all of us. That mission, in verse number 20, is that we are ambassadors of Christ. Ambassador is someone who lives in another country and represents the home country. You live today in the United States of America, but this is not my home. I'm just passing through. My home is in heaven, but God has chosen to leave me here for right now. So therefore, I am a representative of another land. As I represent my Lord, what's going on? Paul said God is making his appeal through us. That word appeal there means to urge, to beg, to implore. He goes on to say, we, we implore, we beg you, we ask you. It's a word of desperation on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. Let me ask you, do you have even remotely that kind of burden in your soul today? Even remotely? I hope that you do because that's what God wants us to be about. He wants us to be about making the appeal. I love this by N.T. Wright. NT. Wright said, "The great symphony of reconciliation composed on Calvary needed to be copied out into orchestral parts for all the world to play." Man, I love that. Let that sink in for just a minute. I played in band when I was in school. I played the trumpet, and uh, I you know the only song I remember that we played was "Fiddler on the Roof." Man, I love that. Dun, 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 dun. Anybody playing the band, play that song? All right. All right, that would be no hands. Filler on the roof. Over here, we had the clarinets. We had the flutes. We had the saxophones. We had the trombones. We had the French horns. We had the tuba. We had the bass drum. We had the snare drum. And then the best section, of the trumpets. And man, we had all come together. We all had our music on our stands laid out, we'd rehearse and we would practice and the band director would get up there and she would get ready and she'd beat out the first measure and we'd start playing and it would all come together and I think it sounded pretty good. Those orchestral parts made up the song. Wright is saying here that when all of us grab our sheet of music, and we realize what happened on the cross, we are able to be a part of God's great orchestra doing our part to shout, Jesus saves, Jesus saves. I was reading this week a section in Reimagining Evangelism by Professor Rick Richardson of Wheaton College, and he paints a picture of God's role and our role in witnessing, and he says that that you and I are members of the Holy Spirit detective agency. I love this. As Christians, we are in the Holy Spirit detective agency. We are detectives, not salespeople. And here's what he means by that. The Holy Spirit is at work. The Holy Spirit is working on the hearts of sinners. And he puts us as detectives in their life to listen to them and to talk with them and to answer questions that they may have. And we identify God is doing a work in their heart and our spirit bears witness with the Holy Spirit that this is a sinner repenting of their sins and we show them the way to Christ. Isn't that a beautiful picture? That we make the appeal. What Church, what an awesome thing. What an awesome thing that God allows us to be a part of his reconciliation process by making the appeal. Look on the screen at verse 21. The last verse says, and I want you to put your name, I want you to put your name in verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I want you to I want you to put your name in verse number 21 for Tim's sake, God made Jesus to be sin when Jesus knew no sin, so that in Jesus, Tim might become the righteousness of God. Isn't that the summary of the gospel? Isn't that the summary? And that's what God sends us out to tell our own testimony of what Christ has done in our hearts and in our lives. And I want to close by just saying that this hour, this moment is urgent, and we need to live in urgency. The results does not rest upon us, it rests upon God. But again, God chooses in his sovereign work to enlist us in the journey. On March the 6th, the Iditarod race took place in Alaska. Some of you may have heard of it. It's one of the most unique sporting events in all of sports, that actually did not begin as a sporting event. But there are about 150 uh, dogs and uh, about 20, 25, what they call mushers, uh, who are the guys that get in the buggy and guide the dogs. And it's a 1,000-mile it's a race that begins in Anchorage, Alaska, and it makes it all the way up to Nome, Alaska. And it's a pretty interesting thing. It's gotten so high-tech now that you can actually go online and keep track of how the race is going digitally. Uh, while they're going across through the snow, but you may not know this. Again, it didn't begin as a, as a sporting event. What happened was in 1925, there was a severe outbreak of diphtheria in Nome, Alaska, and the serum for those kids was in Anchorage. There was no vaccine back in that time or what have you, and so uh, they it was just an urgent thing. There's a great outbreak, very, very uh, contagious. And so they had to get that serum all the way to Nome. So the plan they came up with was the process by which they still do this Iditarod race. Uh, certain dogs and mushers would go as hard as they could go, as fast as they could to a certain point. They would pass off about 300 vials of the serum and then a travel. a The next one would go and then drop it off until the serum would arrive in Nome. Amazingly, they did that journey in 127 hours. No one, no one has broken that record since 1925. Now, here's the reason why. Most people say, because in that moment, there was a sickness and a disease, and there were some dying kids. They had the cure. They were more focused and more determined and could go a little bit farther and a little bit faster because of the urgency of the hour, 127 hours they got that serum there and saved a lot of children's lives. Now, when I read that story, I think about the gospel of Jesus Christ. The greatest disease today in the world is not COVID. It's not diphtheria. The greatest disease today is sin, because sin separates us from a holy and a righteous God. Here's what I believe. I believe that by God's grace, I have the cure for sin. Because when I was 13 years old, I acknowledged my sin. I believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. I confessed my sin and confessed him as Lord. And now that Jesus lives in me and I am in Jesus, I want everyone else to learn about the cure. The truth is, is if we knew that Jesus was going to come back at a certain day, or we knew that some of our friends and family were going to leave this world in a certain marked amount of time, I know what we would do. We would get serious. We'd get serious about it. We would make efforts. We'd make phone calls. We'd make visits. We'd knock on somebody's door, and we'd share our story of faith. How many of you believe the world is changing and the hour is urgent? I believe that the reason we're going to do evangelism training this afternoon is because I just, as far as our part on leadership, I don't want anybody to be to, to feel like you're standing there with a canoe with the Rocky Mountains in front of you. So, we want to just try to help you have some tools to say, Hey, here's a way you might can approach this. We are called, we are commanded, we are commissioned to go. Into all the world and preach the gospel. We are called. Last time, I want you to say it with me. We are called to go and. So let me ask you, when's the last time you made the appeal? When's the last time? Let me ask you one more question. Have you ever made the appeal? Have you ever? Again, I'm trying to encourage you now, trying to help you. Sense of urgency. This is what God's called me to do. I can't, I don't want to be disobedient. I don't want to neglect him, his will for my life. So I want my life to line up with the scriptures. And I want to tell somebody about Jesus. There's a lady came down at the end of the first service. I've got a little track rack here down at the front. It's got some gospel tracks in it, and they are not, they're not any Romans road in it, but there's some that I think, y'all. I heard y'all laugh about that. You use the book of Romans to share the gospel, all right? Just approach it a little different. There's some tracks here, how to be a Christian, Are you crazy busy? Do all roads lead to God? There was one in there this morning. Why does God allow suffering? Good news. Here's the front of a tract that says, you're not alone. You're not alone. Think about that. Think about somebody picking that up who's feeling lonely. (laughs) Think about it. God uses things like that in his sovereign plan. Here's the question. Are we willing and ready to be obedient to make the appeal and do what God has called us to do? And all God's people said,